Father in heaven, thank you once again for the wonderful day you've given us. We thank you for life. We thank you for your word. We ask that as we open that word and study it tonight, that your Holy Spirit will come and be with us. Open our minds and our hearts to receive the message that you have for us tonight. Give us a sincere and willing heart and mind, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The letters of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, and we have two of them, were written to solve or explain certain historical situations or problems that existed in the churches in the area of Thessalonica. Evidently, the Apostle Paul had written, uh, had been written to by the Thessalonians, and they had asked him a very disturbing question to them. You see, many people who had accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior were dying. And evidently, the Apostle Paul had not covered this teaching with the Thessalonian churches about the resurrection through the power of Jesus Christ. That those who died in Christ would resurrect when he came. And so the Apostle Paul wrote back to the Thessalonica uh, churches, and he told them that when Jesus comes, uh, those who are dead in Christ will resurrect from the grave, and those who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the, meet the Lord in the air, and thus to ever be with the Lord. Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage, which we all know, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, gave the impression, evidently, to the Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus was going to come in their very day. Because the Apostle Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17, he says, Then we who are alive, who remain, he includes himself among those who are alive and remain when Jesus comes, shall be caught up together with them, that is, with those who died and resurrected, to meet the Lord in the air. And so the Thessalonians got the impression that the Apostle Paul was saying that Jesus was going to come in their day. What the Apostle Paul really meant is that if he were living in that day, which he was when he was speaking, uh, he would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. He wasn't predicting that he was going to be alive. He was simply saying, then we who are alive, that is, if I'm still alive when Jesus comes, will be caught up together with those who died and resurrected. But the Thessalonians misunderstood what the Apostle Paul had said. And so they uh, thought that Jesus was going to come in their very day. In other words, that the coming of Jesus was imminent that the coming of Jesus could take place at any moment. And if you read chapter 3 of Second uh, Thessalonians, you'll find that many of the people stopped working. In other words, they say, what's the use of working if Jesus is going to come in our day and age? And so they became idle and uh, created all sorts of problems for the churches in Thessalonica. So the Apostle Paul felt impelled to write the second letter to the Thessalonians to correct this erroneous, wrong idea that Jesus was going to come at any moment or that his coming was imminent in the days when Paul and the Thessalonians were living. And this is where the passage that we are going to analyze tonight comes into view. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And remember that the Apostle Paul is correcting the idea that Jesus, the coming of Jesus is imminent that he's going to come at any moment 
in that very generation. The Apostle Paul is going to say, forget it. It's not going to happen that way. There are certain events that must transpire before Jesus can come in power and glory. Now, we're going to study tonight about the Antichrist who sits in the temple of God showing himself to be God. Now, technically speaking, that Antichrist is Satan. Because you remember that in heaven, according to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer, as his name was at that time, said, I will ascend to the heights, to the mount of the congregation, on the sides of the north, and I will sit in the temple of God, and I will be like the Most High. In other words, it has always been the devil's desire to sit in the temple of God. And so we find that in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, we have the background for the Antichrist prophecy. We're going to notice that the devil, however, has an instrument that he uses as, her, as his instrument or as his uh, personification, if we might say so, uh, in this world in order to accomplish his purposes. In other words, Satan and the man of sin who sits in the temple of God are very closely connected, but they're not the same person. The devil is going to use a certain power to accomplish that purpose. Now, let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll just go through this chapter and analyze uh, who this Antichrist that sits in the temple of God is. I'm starting at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his gathering together to us, are you in your Bibles in 2 Thessalonians 2? Okay, good. All right. Tried to trick you there. That's what the devil tries to do all the time. Tries to trick us. And if we don't read the Bible and study it, we'll be deceived. So notice, he says, concerning the coming, now that word coming is very important, it's the word parousia. I don't like to quote a lot of Greek words, but we're going to have to quote some tonight. The word parousia. The reason why that word is important is because we're going to meet it later on in the chapter, and it has very special significance. It is used to describe the second coming of Jesus. And so he says, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now notice what it says, and our gathering together to him, we ask you. Now, when Jesus comes, according to this verse, is he going to be gathered with us, or are we going to be gathered with him? We are going to be gathered with him. You see, many people believe that when Jesus comes the second time, he is going to come to live on this earth with us for a period of a thousand years. And later on in this seminar, we're going to talk about the thousand years. That he's going to come and he's going to set up his kingdom here, an earthly kingdom, for a thousand years. But there are several passages in the New Testament that indicate that when Jesus comes in his parousia, at his coming, it is not a case of him coming down to live with us. It is a case of us being caught up to be with him. Let me just mention some of those verses. Go with me, for example, to Matthew chapter 24. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31. Once again, it's speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 24 and verse uh, 31. Here it says the following. Speaking about the second coming. 
Let's read verse 30 for the context. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels. Excuse me? He will what? He will send his angels. To do what? With a great sound of a trumpet, and they will what? They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. So does Jesus come all the way to the earth or does he send the angels to gather people to himself? That's the way he does it. In fact, in the passage that we referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who remain, shall be what? caught up together to meet in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. Notice once again the idea of gathering and catching up to be with the Lord. And then, of course, you have that famous verse, uh, actually passage in John 14, 1-3, where Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Where's the Father's house? When we pray, how do we pray? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. So where's the Father's house? In heaven. So Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven. So he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Going where? Where did Jesus go? To heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's the parousia, the second coming. I will come again and live with you forever. No. He says, I will come again and what? And receive you to myself. That where I am, ye may be also. So in other words, Jesus in his parousia does not come to this earth to set up his kingdom yet. He will eventually, but not yet. In his second coming, he will come and he will catch his people up to meet him where? To meet him in the air, according to scripture. In fact, we're going to find in Matthew 24 that uh, Jesus warns the disciples. He says, if anybody tells you he's in the desert, don't even think about going out. If anybody says he's in the uh, inner rooms or in the secret rooms, don't go. He says, because as the bolt of lightning flashes from the east unto the west, so also shall be the coming, the word parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I wanted you to notice these very important items because they're going to come into view a little bit later on. So he says in verse 1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about spirit here, people are claiming to have the spirit. You read in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says that the prophets have the spirit. In other words, he's saying if a prophet arises among you, and claims to have the Spirit, and is trying to trouble your mind or shake you, don't pay any attention. So he says, either by Spirit 
or by word, that is rumors of what the Apostle Paul is saying, which he really didn't say, or by letter, the word epistle in the Greek. In other words, even if you have an epistle, supposedly written by the Apostle Paul from anybody, whether it's a, a person who claims to have the spirit of prophecy, whether it's an individual that says, oh, I heard Paul say, or whether it's an individual that says, I have an actual epistle signed by Paul, where he says that the coming of the Lord is going to be at any moment. Right now, it's imminent. He says, don't let those people trouble you. Don't even pay any attention to them. Notice once again verse 2. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, what? Had come. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, if anybody tells you in any manner that Jesus has come, you can totally cast what that individual says aside. And then in verse 3, the Apostle Paul is going to explain that before Jesus can come, certain key events have to take place. Now the question is, what events need to take place? Well, let's go to verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means. Who is the Apostle Paul saying that might be deceived? Who is he writing to? Is he writing to Christians? In Matthew 24, when Jesus says that the devil will try to deceive, if possible, even the very elect, speaking about the possibility of deceiving Christians. So is there the possibility that even Christians might be deceived if they don't understand these things? Absolutely. They're, they are the target of the devil. Christians. For the simple reason that he already has the world deceived. doesn't have to worry about the world. He has to worry about Christians. Notice once again, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, which day? The day of his parousia, the day of his coming, will not come unless the falling away comes what? The falling away comes first. So let me ask you, before Jesus comes, what must take place? The falling away. Now, let me explain to you what that expression, falling away, means. The Greek word there is very interesting. It is the work, the word apostasia. What word do we get in the English language from apostasia? Those who speak Spanish know because it's identical in Spanish. It's the word what? Apostasy. He says Jesus cannot come unless the apostasy comes first. Now I want you to notice that this is not unapostasy. Because in the Greek, it has the definite article, the apostasy. In other words, this is a specific, well-known apostasy that was going to come in. He doesn't say, you know, there's going to be an apostasy before Jesus comes. He says, the apostasy is going to take place before Jesus comes. Now let me ask you this. What is an apostasy? What is an apostasy? Do you know what an apostasy is? When an individual once belonged to church and he decides to give it up, to give up Christianity, to give up the Lord, he goes out the doors of the church, we say that that individual apostatized. Isn't that right? In other words, he drifted away. He fell away from the faith. In fact, this very word, 
apostasia is used in the Greek classical world to refer to a ship that was at port but whose anchor is not heavy enough to hold the ship in port and the ship starts drifting away from the port. That's why it's translated the falling away. Now let me ask you something. If the ship is being, is, is actually drifting away because its anchor is not well-founded, must that boat have been at the port at some point? Yes, it must have been at the port, and it what? It drifts away. In other words, the boat apostatizes, if we can use the expression. Let me ask you then, if this is speaking about the apostasy that is going to take place before Jesus comes, and it is a specific apostasy, must this refer to individuals who originally walked with the Lord? Must it refer to the fact that the Christian church, the Christian world, originally was fine with the Lord, but at some point there was a tremendous apostasy in the Christian church? Obviously, yes. And we're going, as we go along, we're going to see more and more evidence of this. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that before Jesus comes, there is going to be a massive, overwhelming apostasy from the faith, from the apostolic faith. In fact, in Ephesians 4.14, the Apostle Paul warned that we should not be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In other words, what is it many times that brings about apostasy? Doctrine is compared to winds. You know, there's some people in the church that are very unstable. They don't have any anchor because they don't study the Word. They don't research the Word. They don't live the Word. And so any person that comes in and starts teaching something, a new doctrine or a new theory or a new concept, they say, wow, I didn't know that before. That's great, isn't it? And it can be the worst concept imaginable. But if you're not well-founded in Scripture, it's to be expected that you will be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So the Apostle Paul here is speaking about a specific apostasy. In other words, it's going to be a drifting away from the faith, the pure faith of the gospel of the apostles. Now let's go back once again to verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away or the apostasy comes first. The word protos. The word protos in Greek. In other words, the apostasy has to take place first. And then notice what it says. And the man of sin is revealed. Let me ask you, who is the one who is going to lead in this apostasy? It is the man of what? The man of sin. Now, let me explain something to you. In many ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, of 2 Thessalonians, it is translated not the man of sin, but the man of lawlessness. Now, it can be translated man of sin, or it can be translated man of lawlessness. It doesn't make that much difference. We'll see in a minute. However, I believe that probably the best translation here is the man of lawlessness, for two reasons. Notice what it says in verse 7. It says, for the mystery of what? Of lawlessness is already at work. And then notice also what it says in verse 9. The coming of the what? Lawless one is according to the working of Satan. 
And once again, verse 8 says, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, even if you say that this individual is called the man of sin, let me ask you this, what is sin? Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3, a text that we've read before, but we want to read it again. 1 John chapter 3, and uh, let's read verse 4. There it says the following. Whoever commits sin also commits what? Lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now let me just explain something here. In the Greek language, when you have a noun, for example, law, and you want to say that some person is opposed to the law, all you have to do is add an A as the initial letter to that noun, and it means someone who is against the law. Now the word law here is nomos. But if you want to say that it's an individual who is against the law, all you do is add an A and it's anomos. In other words, this man is the man of anomos. In other words, he's opposed to what? He's opposed to the law of God. Now let me ask you, do you remember another text in Scripture that speaks of a power in Bible prophecy that opposes God's holy law? Do you remember? Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. Go back to Daniel chapter 7. And let's notice what it says in verse 25. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, speaking about the little horn. You remember the little horn? It says there, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change what? To change times and what? Times and law. So let me ask you, does the man of lawlessness do the same thing as the little horn? And incidentally, historically, does the man of lawlessness come after Paul, and does the little horn also come after Paul in the Roman Empire? Absolutely. So in other words, this is the same power that opposes God's holy law. The man of sin. And sin is lawlessness. The identical word that is used here when it says the mystery of lawlessness is at work. When it speaks about the lawless one is the identical word in 1 John 3, 4, where it says that sin is lawlessness is anomias. So even if you translate it, the man of sin, <laughs> there's no problem, because sin is lawlessness. We just read it. So if you translate it man of sin or man, man of lawlessness, it makes absolutely no difference. This power, in other words, takes issue with what? With God's holy law. So is the little horn parallel to the man of sin to this point? Absolutely. Now I want you to notice something else. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. In other words, the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, or the man of lawlessness, the one who is against the law, the one who takes issue with God's law, is what? Is revealed. Now, you know what some people say? They say, you know, pastor, it says the man of sin. 
it's clear as the day that this must be a certain individual. This cannot be a system that governs for a long period of time because he's called the man of sin. Masculine, singular. So it must be a particular man. But there are clear indications, both in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in the parallel prophecies of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 that indicate that this is not referring to a single person. And let me share with you the reasons. Reason number one. The, this man of sin is parallel to the beast of Revelation 13, which you've already studied. And in the Bible, a beast always represents a kingdom, not a person. A beast is not a person. A beast is a kingdom. So this must not be only one king or one ruler. It must be a kingdom, a succession of rulers. Secondly, interestingly enough, this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that this Man of sin was already wanting to manifest himself in the days of Paul. Because it says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But have you noticed that in chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that this lawless one will be destroyed when Jesus comes? So how could this be a person? If he was already working in the days of Paul, and he's going to be destroyed at the second coming, wow, that's a pretty long lifespan. Furthermore, Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 explains very clearly that this power would rule 1,260 years. And to tell you the truth, I don't know anyone yet that has lived that long. Furthermore, the, the fact that it says the man of sin does not necessarily mean that it's speaking of an individual person. And let me explain why. And I'll just refer to the verses. I told you I wasn't going to read them all. In Hebrews 9 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul speaks about the priest, the high priest. But he's not referring to a specific high priest. He's speaking about anybody who serves in the office of high priest. But he says, the high priest takes in the blood. He's not talking about one specific high priest. He's talking about a succession of priests in the Old Testament system. Not only that, but we find in 1 Samuel 8, verse 11, in fact, it would be a good idea for, for us to go back there, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 11, uh, we find something very interesting. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 11, speaking about the kings of Israel. There it says the following. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. Let me ask you, is he talking about only one king who's going to do that? No, he's saying the king in the succession of kings that serves at that particular time. In other words, the, the word the, or the expression the king in singular, masculine singular, can refer not only to a single king, but to a succession of kings. Now notice what it says also in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17. Let's notice how the word man is used. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17. Here the Apostle Paul says, and let's read verse 16 for the context, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped 
for every good work. What does that mean, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work? Does, is that referring to a specific man? No. When it says the man, it's referring to what? To every person who has the Scriptures and studies the Scriptures. In other words, the fact that this system is called the man of sin does not necessarily indicate that it's talking about a particular special individual person that arises, say, at the end during the tribulation. It could refer to a system, even using this expression. Now, I want you to notice also that this system, going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin is what? Is revealed. Now let me ask you, what is the antonym of revealed? It's the word concealed. In fact, the Greek word that is used here is the word apocalypsis, where we get our word what? Apocalypse. And what does the word apocalypse mean? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the way it's translated in Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, if this power is going to be revealed, it must be that in the days of Paul, this power is what? Is concealed. And there's a certain moment that is going to come when this power will reveal himself for what he is. In other words, in the days of Paul, he is undercover. He is hidden. The power is veiled. But at a certain moment in human history, this power is going to be revealed for what it is. It is going to be unveiled, in other words. Now I want you to notice the next characteristic here in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Very important one. Once again, verse 4, let no one deceive, verse 3, excuse me, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the coming of Jesus, will not come unless the falling away or the apostasy comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. In other words, an individual who takes issue with the law of God, or a system that takes issue with the law of God. And it says that this man of sin will be what? Revealed. And now I want you to notice what this system is called. The son of perdition. Let me ask you, where is the only other place in Scripture that that name, son of perdition, is used? The only other time in Scripture that this identical name is used is to describe Judas Iscariot. Do you suppose it might be a good idea to take a look at Judas Iscariot? Do you think the character of this Antichrist is going to be similar to that of Judas if they have the same name? Notice John chapter 17 and verse 12. John chapter 17 and verse 12. Here's where you have the reference to Judas Iscariot as the son of perdition. There it says in John 17 verse 12, Jesus is speaking, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except whom? The son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, 
this system is going to be very similar to Judas. Now let's take a little a look at Judas. What type of individual was Judas? He was an atheist who openly defied Jesus and fought against Jesus from outside. No? Was Judas one of the insiders? Was he one of the twelve apostles? Did he carry on his enmity, enmity undercover until the last moment when he was revealed for what he was? In fact, let me ask you, was Judas Iscariot a great leader, according to the New Testament? Yes, he was. He was head and shoulders above the apostles in his administrative ability, if you notice the text that Scripture mentions. What was the problem with Judas Iscariot? He wanted position, he wanted power, and he wanted money. And he wanted a worldly kingdom. He did not want Christ's spiritual kingdom. He wanted to use the power of the sword to establish Christ's kingdom on earth. And when Jesus did not fit in with that idea of the kingdom, he said, this is not the fellow that I want to hang around with. You remember when uh, uh, this Mary Magdalene anointed the feet of Jesus and dried the feet of Jesus with her hair? What did Judas say? You find this in John 12, verses 4 to 6. He says, my, this money could have been saved. And it could have, be, could have been spent to help whom? The poor. So in other words, we find Judas Iscariot feigning a love for the poor, but at the same time being greedy and wanting power and wanting rank, and wanting authority, and wanting money. Let me ask you, did Judas Iscariot have the disciples deceived until the very end? Have you noticed that even the insiders were deceived by this individual? Can you imagine how hypocritical Judas must have been when they're sitting at the Last Supper, and Jesus says, one of you are, is going to betray me. Let me ask you, what is betrayal? What is a betrayal? What is it to be a traitor? It means that somebody shoots at you from outside. No, sorry. To betray or to be a traitor means that you are an insider and you arise against the very individuals that are in the inside with you. Am I correct or not? Now notice that Judas, when all the disciples say, Lord, is that possible? Is it I? Judas hypocritically, even though he knew that Jesus could read human hearts, he says, is it I? In fact, he had the disciples so deceived to the very end that when Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. The disciples actually thought that Jesus was sending him on an errand. You can read it there in John chapter 13 and verses 26 to 29. They didn't even catch on then. But was he soon revealed for what he was? So let me ask you, did Judas carry on his work undercover? Was his enmity from the inside? Was he one of the chosen circle? Yes, he was. In fact, 
Do you know that the Bible says that he knew exactly the place where Jesus hung out with the disciples? In John chapter 18, in verses 2 to 5, when the multitude comes to arrest Jesus, it states clearly there in verse 2 that Judas brought them to the place where Jesus was because he knew where he was. Not only that, in Luke chapter 22, in verses 47 and 48, you find the Bible saying that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus with what? With a kiss. Incidentally, do you know that the Bible says that Judas was a devil? Turn with me to John chapter 6 and verses 70 and 71. John chapter 6 and verses 70 and 71. Let me ask you, did Jesus know from very early in his ministry that there was a traitor in, the, in his midst? Yes, he did. Notice what it says in verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Was Judas the devil? Was Judas literally, personally the devil? Why does it say that one of them is the devil? Because Judas was just like the Antichrist is going to be. See, there's the devil, and then there's, then there's the Antichrist who is the instrument of the devil. Just like you have the devil who wants Jesus betrayed, but he uses Judas, could we use the expression the little devil, to betray Jesus? Notice verse 71. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Also, I would like you to turn with me to John chapter 13, John chapter 13 and verse 27, where he's also described as being demon-possessed. John chapter 13 and verse 27. This is all important for what we're going to study a little bit later on in this passage, where it speaks about the Antichrist being energized by Satan. He comes by the operation of Satan, just like Judas did. It says in verse 27, Now, after the piece of bread, after Jesus gave Judas a piece of bread, because he said, To whoever I give this piece of bread, that is the person who's going to betray me. He did it in front of the disciples, and the disciples still didn't catch on. Amazing. And so Jesus gives him the bread, Judas receives it, and notice what it says. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Who was Judas energized by? He was energized by Satan. He was a traitor from inside. He was not an atheist who defied God, who raised his fist against God. He was an individual who arose from within, an enemy from within. Let me ask you, the final Antichrist then, he's going to be some atheist who's going to sit in the Jerusalem temple and curse the God of heaven. Or might it just be that he's going to rise within the very Christian church, the circle of the chosen by Jesus, and he's going to betray other believers? Is that the picture that we're getting from Judas? That's the reason why he's called the son of perdition. Now let's go back once again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're unraveling this, uh, this passage here. We're, we're explaining it point by point. Notice what it says once again in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of the coming of Jesus, the parousia will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, takes place first. 
and the man of sin, that is the individual who opposes the law, the man of lawlessness, the one who doesn't like God's law, comes first. The son of perdition is revealed, excuse me, the son of perdition. In other words, he's going to be a what? A Judas. And now notice verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. What is he going to do? Who is he going to oppose? He's going to oppose God. Let me ask you, did Judas oppose Christ? Would Judas ever have admitted that he was opposing Christ? No. When it says that this individual is going to oppose God, is it saying that this is going to be some atheist who is going to openly war against the God of heaven? No. Let me ask you, how is it that he is going to oppose God? The Bible says in the next few verses that he is going to oppose God by claiming to be God. Let me ask you, does this fit with the passage that we studied about the little horn? You remember we studied the passage about the little horn? What does it say there? He, he shall speak what? Blasphemies against the Most High. Let me ask you, what is blasphemy? We already studied this. Blasphemy is when a mere human being claims to be God. And it's when a human being claims to have the power to forgive sins. And it's also an individual who allows people to call him Father. Jesus said, call no man on earth your Father. It's an individual who allows people to bow down before him and kiss his feet or a ring or whatever it is. doesn't make any difference. It's an individual whose name, vicarious Philly Day, which means substitute, or one who occupies the place of Jesus Christ. In other words, when it says that he opposes God, it's not speaking about some atheist who openly defies God. It's speaking about a power who opposes God by occupying the place of God. Incidentally, let me just read you a very interesting statement from Dave Hunt. Any of you ever read anything by Dave Hunt? He's written a lot of books. I don't agree with everything that he says, but he said some things that I definitely can agree with. Uh, this is in his book, Global Peace, pages 6 through 8. Notice what he got, he got the right picture. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist writing. I believe he's a Baptist. He says, while the Greek prefix anti generally means against or of God. And then notice what it says. So that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Where does this Antichrist sit? In the temple of God. So somebody says, Pastor, there it is, clear, clear as the day. Clear as the sun. It says that this individual is going to sit over in the Jerusalem temple. I didn't find the word Jerusalem in here. But someone says, well, Pastor, that is the temple, isn't it? Let me ask you something. Is this speaking about the heavenly temple? Can this be speaking about the heavenly temple where God dwells? No, because Satan was cast out from there. The Antichrist can't sit up there. Do you agree with me? 
Can this refer to the Jewish temple? It can't. Let me explain why. First of all, when Jesus left the temple for the last time, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. And then he spoke about the destruction of the temple. Because they rejected Jesus, the temple was destroyed. Furthermore, in Matthew 23, verse 38, Jesus said, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a nation that produces the fruits thereof. In the parable of the fig tree, the Lord Jesus, using the fig tree as an illustration of Israel, says that because it did not bear fruit, he cursed the fig tree. And it dried up from where? From its roots. In fact, when Jesus on the cross, according to John 19, verse 30, said, it is finished. If you compare Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, it tells us that when Jesus said, it is finished, the veil of the temple was ripped from bottom to top. Ah, good, okay. From top to bottom. What was God indicating? He was indicating that the services in the Jewish temple were what? Were finished. That's why the minute he says, it is finished, the veil of the temple rips open. God is saying, this is no longer the temple of God. Besides, there is no Jewish temple today. So if this is not the heavenly temple where this Antichrist will sit, if this is not the Jewish temple over in the Middle East, the question is, what is this temple? Where is it? Well, let me ask you, do you suppose that it might let, be a good idea to let the Apostle Paul explain the Apostle Paul? Do you think it might be good to go to other verses where the Apostle Paul refers to the temple of God to know what this temple of God is? See, most Christians, they write, you go to a bookstore and you find all sorts of books that describe you this coming war over in the Middle East, you know, with the uh, Arabic nations and with uh, the Russians uh, coming against Israel and the temple will have been rebuilt and they're going to try and destroy the temple and the sacrificial system is going to be established all over again. But the fact is, they use this verse in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 where it says he sits in the temple of God, but the fact is, Jesus no longer refers to the Jewish temple as the temple of God. When he went into the temple for the last time in Matthew 21, he did say, this is my father's house. And it says he went into the temple of God. But when he went out in Matthew chapter 23, he says, your house is left unto you desolate. In other words, while he is present there, it's his house. When he left, it's no longer his house. So the question is, what is this temple of God? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul himself tell us. Go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and let's uh, read verses 20 to 22, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 20 to 22. Here the Apostle Paul, actually let's read starting at verse 19 so we can catch the context, it says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, let me ask you, the temple today, does the temple today have a chief cornerstone? Does the, does the temple also have foundations? Yes, and of course those foundations are great big stones over there in the Middle East. No. The apostle Paul says, 
Listen, the church is built upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus. And the apostles and prophets, that means the writings of the Old and the New Testament. And then verse 21 says, in whom the whole building, is this speaking about the temple? Yes. In whom, that is in Jesus, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What is the holy temple in the Lord according to this verse? It is the church, the Ephesian church. And then notice that there is a Shekinah that inhabits in the temple. Remember in the Old Testament, the glory of God came down upon the mercy seat in the temple? Now, what is that, uh, what is that glory, that Shekinah glory now? Notice verse 21, once again. In whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Let me ask you, what is the glory of God that inhabits the temple today? It is the Holy Spirit. And let me ask you, where does the Holy Spirit inhabit today? It inhabits in the hearts of church members. Are you with me or not? So are we dealing with a literal temple or are we dealing with a spiritual temple? Notice. We're dealing with a temple that has a chief cornerstone, which is a person, Jesus. The other foundations are the writings of the apostles and the prophets. Right? The stones are what? The believers. And the glory in the temple is the Holy Spirit. So in other words, for the apostle Paul, what is the temple? It is the church. Now notice what it says in 1 Corinthians, one or two other passages that refer to the temple, where the Apostle Paul himself refers to the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. And incidentally, uh, I want you to know that the word temple in all of these passages is the same Greek word, naos. So you're not dealing with different words for temple. The same word in 2 Thessalonians 2 for the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God is the one that is used in all of the other passages that Paul uh, wrote. So notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. He's speaking to the Corinthian church and he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Is that the identical expression in 2 Thessalonians 2? That he sits in the what? In the temple of God, identical expression. But who is the temple of God according to this? The Corinthians. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So according to Paul, who is the temple? The church. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I could read many passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's notice verses 14 through 18. And the Apostle Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with, with what? With lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then he says to the Corinthians, For you 
are the temple of the living God. Who is the temple of the living God, according to Paul himself? The Corinthians. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So once again, when the Apostle Paul speaks about the temple of God, what is he referring to? He's referring to the what? To the church. So where are we to expect this Antichrist to arise? Of course, he's going to arise over there in the Middle East somewhere. Would you agree with that? Have you noticed all of the characteristics we've studied? Where does it point? To the Middle East or does it point to an inside job? We're dealing with an inside job here. Let me just share this with you. For those of you who know about football, any of you ever watch football? <laughs> and those that didn't raise their hands, you just don't want people to know that they watch football. But anyway, in football there is a play that's called the counterplay. Ever heard of that, the counterplay? And that's when the offensive line, there's the runner behind the offensive line, the offensive line all pulls in one direction. And the runner goes in the opposite direction than where his blockers are going. Now what happens when all of his blockers move in one direction? What happens with the defense? They say, oh, the runner's coming this way. And so they all block this way, trying to catch the runner. But lo and behold, when the offensive line and the defense are all moving in, in the one direction, then the field is wide open on the other end, and the runner goes around the end, and many times will score a touchdown. You see, what 2 Thessalonians 2 is talking about is that is this, this is a counterplay. Because what the devil has convinced Christians of is that, folks, you're supposed to look at the movements in the Middle East. Look over there! Because that's where the devil moves the events and stirs up trouble in the Middle East so that everybody, what? Says, oh, that's where the plane is going to be. And then what does the devil do? He runs around the opposite end. It's also called a misdirection play. Where everybody thinks you're going right and you're going left. The devil is an expert at that, and that's what's being described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's describing the fact that most people will be looking in the wrong place. Most Christians will be looking in the wrong place for the Antichrist. They will be looking at the Middle East in the future during the tribulation when the Antichrist already arose in the past in Rome. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me ask you, who were the worshipers in the temple in the Old Testament? Who were the people that came to the temple to worship? The Jews, right? Israel. So let me ask you, do the Jews and Israel, let's say if there's a spiritual temple today, must there be worshipers that come to worship at that temple? If it's the church. Yes, and those, of course, have to be people whose last names are Goldberg and Goldstein and etc. They have to be literal Jews. That's what it's talking about, worshiping in the temple of God, right? No. You see, while in the Old Testament there was a literal temple where the literal Jews came to worship, today, 
We have a spiritual temple, which is the church, where spiritual Jews come to worship. Those who have received Jesus Christ into their lives. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, he says there's no longer any Jew or Greek. There's no longer male or female. There's no longer slave or free. He says you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So just like in the Old Testament, you have the literal Jewish temple over there in the Middle East, and the literal Jewish nation came to worship at the temple. So when that temple ceased fulfilling the function that God had for it, now God has a spiritual temple, which is the church, where his spiritual Israelites gather for worship. So where is the Antichrist going to arise? He's going to arise within the very Christian church where spiritual Israel worships the Lord. Now, you remember that in a previous lecture we talked about the little horn. And we saw that the little horn not only thought he could change the law, but he also thought, thought that he could change what? The time. Now let me explain that that is extremely important, not only that he thought he could change the law, because this is the man of lawlessness who opposes the law. This is an a power that claims to have the power of God on earth. It's an insider like Judas. It sits or arises within the church, according to what we've studied, among spiritual Israelites. But we find also that this power, according to Daniel 7.25, thinks that he can change the times. Now what does that mean, change the time? There are two very important biblical references that refer to the times that help us understand what this is talking about. One of them is Daniel 2.21, where it says that God changes the times and the seasons. God. So if the little horn claims to change the times, he must be claiming to be what? Claiming to be God. And so we find that Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 says that God changes the times and the seasons. But then chapter 7 says that the little horn thinks he can change the times. What are those times? Well, if you go to one other text in Scripture which is Acts chapter 1 and verses 6 through 8. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, will you establish the kingdom for Israel at this time? This is before the day of Pentecost. And what does Jesus answer to them? He says, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, it is not for you to know these prophetic events the prophetic schedule, when the kingdom is going to be established. Are you with me or not? In other words, the expression times, incidentally, the Bible even says that the little horn rules time, times, and dividing of time, which is a prophetic period. Now, if it says that this little horn is going to change the time, it must mean that it's going to change the interpretation of what? A prophetic event. Are you following me or not? He's going to change the prophetic time. And let me share something that is astounding with you. Do you know that every single one of the Protestant reformers believed that the papacy was the predicted antichrist of Scripture? Martin Luther, great, great individual in the history of the Christian church, 
clearly believed that the man of sin was the papist. John Calvin, father of Presbyterianism. I have scores of quotations where Calvin says, I know what the man of sin sitting in the temple is. It's the papacy sitting in the Christian church. Philip Melanchthon, friend of Martin Luther, the same. Ulrich Swingley, who established the Reformed Church. John Wesley, the author of Methodism. All of them believe that the little horn of Daniel 7, the beast of Revelation 13, and the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2 represented the apostasy that came into the church from within the church, which is the papacy. But the Roman Catholic Church, of course, did not like that. Because Luther and Calvin used some of the arguments that I've used here. <laughs> I mean, how can you argue with lion, bear, leopard, dragon, ten horns, little horn? I mean, that doesn't give you much room for doubt. For gold, silver, bronze, iron, ten toes, clay. Or in Revelation 13, same thing. Lion, bear, leopard, dragon with ten horns, beast. And of course, in 2 Thessalonians 2, you have a restrainer that restrains the manifestation of his power, and then you have the same Antichrist, the apostasy. And so they use these powerful biblical arguments, all of the Protestant reformers. And of course, many people believe what they were teaching. And the church, the Roman Catholic Church, was losing scores of people. So they said, we have to do something about this. So they planned what is known as the Counter-Reformation, which was a method to try and arrest the Protestant Reformation. And two Roman Catholic priests, one by the name of Louis de Alcazar, established a system of interpreting Bible prophecy known as preterism. And it's the idea that all of the Bible prophecies, or most of the Bible prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, were fulfilled in the distant past with an individual called Antiochus Epiphanes and with the Roman emperor. In other words, he said, this can't apply to the Roman Catholic Church, this little horn, this beast. That's, you know, the beast, that's Nero. The little horn, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, who sacrificed a pig on a Jewish altar back in the year 165 B.C. But there was another one, Francisco Ribera, who arose and said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll develop a system of interpreting prophecy where I will teach that everything that the Bible teaches about end-time events, particularly Revelation 4 through the end of the, of the book, refers to things that are going to take place in the distant past. They haven't happened yet. In fact, the church is going to be gone from planet Earth when it happens. It's during the tribulation. You don't have to worry about that. Incidentally, if Christians are going to go to heaven before the tribulation, why would God leave us in the book of Revelation what the tribulation is going to be like? How would that benefit us? wouldn't do any good to study the book of Revelation. You see, what the devil has planned is convincing Christians that they're not going to be in the world during the tribulation so that when the tribulation comes, they're not ready. But anyway, he developed this system of interpreting Bible prophecy, Ribera did, that is called futurism. The idea that almost all of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation have not been fulfilled yet, they will be fulfilled at the very last remnant of time during the tribulation. 
And so what these two Roman Catholic scholars did was project prophecy to the distant past or relegate it to the remote future. And in that way, the finger that pointed to the papacy that was fulfilling those very prophecies was removed. And do you know what the sad thing is? You go to Christian bookstores today of individuals that belong to the churches that were founded by these Protestant reformers and you can't find a trace of their biblical interpretation of Bible prophecy. All Bible prophecy that you read in the book is going to be fulfilled in the distant future or in the future with the Antichrist over in Jerusalem. The kings of the east are the Russians and the kings of the south are the Arabs and everything. And meanwhile, the Antichrist grows in Rome and nobody can see it because the attention of Christians has been directed to the wrong place. Do you think this is important? You say, Pastor, you're being too hard on the Roman Catholic system. I don't think I could ever be too hard on Roman Catholic system. I love Catholics. I love Lutherans. I love Presbyterians. I love people from all denominations. God has told us that we're supposed to love everyone. But that does not mean that we love apostate systems that prophecy clearly identifies. In other words, we love the sinner, but we do not love the sin. We love the individual, but we cannot love the system. Because the Bible describes these systems as being apostate systems. Are you with me? So did the little horn change the times of God? Prophetic times? Yes. It is a totally misdirected system of interpreting Bible prophecy. Now let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Are you catching the picture here? They were analyzing the passage from within. We're not looking over, let's see what's happening in the Middle East. Oh, where is that in the Bible? Uh-uh. Off base. You don't go out there and look and then try to find foundation in the Bible for what you see. No. You go to the Bible, you understand the sequence of powers, you understand how God paints human history, and then you say, now let's look out there if we can find and see if we can find that power that's described in Scripture. That way, Scripture is interpreting history and not history Scripture, which can be very dangerous. You know, in a previous lecture, I talked a little bit about, uh, in the series last spring, about the story of Cinderella, you know? Good illustration. Cinderella, you know, she lost her shoe when she was coming out of the palace. And then the prince, he gets the shoe, he says, i got to find the woman that this shoe fits. So he looks at the size, he looks at all the characteristics, and he goes and tries to find the foot that the shoe fits. So that's what we did when we studied the Antichrist. We looked at all the characteristics of the shoe, and then we went to history to try and find the foot. Is that the proper way of doing it? I think that's the only proper way of doing it. That's the only proper way of studying Scripture. Now let's notice once again what it says here in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? In other words, you already know this, the Apostle Paul is saying. And then for the first time in this passage we find a mysterious restrainer. It says in verse 6, and now you know what is restraining. In other words, something was holding this power back from manifesting itself. It says, now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. The little horn governs what? 
Times, time, and the dividing of time. Did God have a time allotted for the little horn to rule? Rule? Here it says that the Antichrist, or this man of sin, will be revealed in his own time. And then it says in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There is something that is restraining this power from manifesting itself in the days of Paul. Now the question is, what is it that was restraining this power? All of the early church fathers, without exception, and they were living in that time, and the Apostle Paul said, you know who the restrainer is in his day. Every single one of them says that the restraining power was the Roman Empire. Now you say, how could the Roman Empire restrain this man of sin from manifesting himself? Let me ask you, did the Roman power, did the Roman Empire have to give up its power to this power in order for this power to rule, or rule and govern? Yes. Notice the sequence, once again, Daniel chapter 2. You have legs of iron, ten toes, clay. In Daniel 7, you have the dragon beast, the ten horns, a little horn from the head of the dragon beast. And in Revelation 13, you have the dragon with ten horns who gives his seat, his throne, and his authority to the beast. And in first, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you have the restrainer who is taken out of the way, and then the man of sin is manifested. In all cases, what is the power that comes immediately before the little horn before the beast and before the man of sin is manifested. It is the Roman Empire. You see, as long as the Roman Empire remained separate from the church, the church could not use it for its purposes and manifest its power. It could not sit on the throne of the Caesars to dictate what happened in the empire. As long as the church was persecuted by the Roman Empire, there was nothing that the Roman Empire, there, there was nothing that... Uh, could allow this power to manifest itself. But when the emperor said to the bishop of Rome, now I'm going to let you sit on the throne, I'm going to let you rule, the restraining force was what? It was removed. And now the papacy arose to power and it ruled according to Daniel chapter 7 for time, times, and the dividing of time. That is 1,260 years. That's its appointed time. See, this passage is parallel to Daniel 7, Revelation 13. Do you see that? How many of you see that? That we have several, uh, several parallels between these two. Now let's go to the last part. Notice what it says once again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. And by the way, this is referring to the future now. It says, And then the lawless one will be what? Reveal. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his parousia. Remember that word? In other words, this wicked Antichrist is going to be destroyed by the what? By the coming or the parousia of Jesus. But now, listen to this. A crucial, crucial point in this passage. Do you know that the Antichrist also has his parousia? 2 Thessalonians 2 
speaks about two parousia, two comments. Say, how's that? Well, let's continue reading. Once again, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And now notice verse 9. The coming of the lawless one. Do you know what that word is? The coming of the lawless one? Parousia. So before the lawless one is destroyed, is he going to have his parousia? Is he going to have his coming? Yes. It says in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of whom? Of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. So let me ask you, is the devil going to counterfeit the second coming of Jesus? He's going to have his parousia before he's destroyed in Christ's parousia. In fact, we don't have time to read it now, but if you notice in Matthew 24, it speaks about a counterfeit Christ. If someone says he is in the desert, don't go out. If someone says he is in the secret rooms, don't, don't follow it up. Because when Jesus comes the second time, the Bible says he's not going to touch the earth. We will be gathered up to him. But will this Antichrist in his parousia go up and down on the face of the earth? Yes. And incidentally, it says here that he's going to work with power, signs, and line wonders. In fact, when it says here that, that this Antichrist is according to the working of Satan, the word working there is the Greek word energeion. It can be translated that he is energized by Satan. Was Judas energized by Satan? Absolutely he was. And what will be performed? Power, signs, and line wonders. Now in Acts 2, verse 22, these same identical words are used to describe what Jesus did while he was on this earth. You can read it there. Power, signs, and wonders. Identical three words in Greek are used to describe what Jesus did while he was on this earth. Let me ask you, did the Lord Jesus uh, perform many powerful works while he was here? Marry many miracles? So is the Antichrist going to do the same thing? Sure. So immediately we ask the question, if the Antichrist is going to do the very works that Christ did when Christ came to this earth the first time, signs, wonders, miracles, how can we distinguish whether these signs, wonders, and miracles are of God or whether they're not of God? How do we know? Let's notice what the passage continues saying there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 9, the coming, the parousia of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Why are they lost? They did not receive what? The love of the truth. What is the truth? Jesus is the truth, yes. But what is it that reveals Jesus? Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17 and verse 17. How important is it then to know, to love, 
and to follow the truth. It's a matter of life and death according to this. So there's got to be two groups. The groups that follow power, signs, and mind wonders, and the people who accept what? The truth, as it's found in God's Word. And unfortunately today, what most people want is signs and wonders and miracles. The sensational. There's nothing new. In the time of Jesus, it was the same way. You read John chapter 6 and verse 2, it said the multitudes followed Jesus because of the signs that he performed. The loaves and fishes. I probably would have followed along too. Just get a free meal, you know. But then it says there in John 6 that when Jesus started preaching, things they didn't like, at the end of chapter 6, they say, ah, the food and the miracles, yes. <laughs> but don't give me the word. And so they left. In fact, do you know what's really amazing? Is that in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus speaks about individuals who will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? Were these Christians? Were these Christians? So called. They're doing it in his name. And what is Jesus going to say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. The identical word, anomia. And then Jesus explains why this happened. Let me ask you, are there going to be many Christians who will perform miracles at the end of time, but they're instruments of Satan? What that passage says in Matthew 7, you say, that's impossible, Pastor Boy. Let me ask you, are all miracles of God? In that case, the devil would be of God. Because he was the, one, the, the first one who did a miracle in Genesis chapter 3. You remember? He gave the serpent the capacity to speak, apparently. That was a miracle. And he led Eve to disobey God's word. See, she followed the miracle instead of the word. When the miracle conflicts with the word, you choose the word over the miracle. Love the truth above everything. I'm not saying that God does not perform miracles, true miracles today. What I'm saying is that we must test the miracle worker to see if what the miracle worker teaches is in harmony with God's holy word. And so it says, as we conclude, verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. It's not really God that's doing actively. It's God that says, okay, you know, you want to follow the, the signs and the wonders. You know, that's up to you. I give you freedom of choice. God, God withdraws himself. And as a result, these people are deceived. So it says in verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And according to the context, it says, in, in Greek it says, the lie. Which lie? According to the context. The lie of the counterfeit coming. Are you with me or not? Because you notice what it says once again. It says it once again in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, the Lord or God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie 
the lie that is in the previous verse, the lying wonders, signs, the counterfeit, second coming of Jesus. Verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not what? Who did not believe the truth, but had what? But had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let me tell you folks, it is of crucial importance that we sit down and we go to our Bibles with a sincere heart, with prayer, and tell the Lord, speak, Lord, so I will listen. I will believe what you teach. There's too many people who go to the Bible to teach it instead of allowing the Bible to teach them. So have you caught a picture of who this Antichrist is? Is it a Middle Eastern Antichrist? Or is it a Western Antichrist? It's a Western power. All of the characteristics show it. Very clearly. Temple of God. The church. Be like Judas. Will be concealed under cover. Then revealed. Restrained by the Roman Empire. Just waiting till the Roman Empire is removed. So it can manifest its power. Opposing God. While claiming to serve God. Attacking God's law. Thinking they could change God's law. Having an appointed time, just like the little horn. There's no doubt whatsoever what this power represents. Now let me conclude with this. Hey, why is this so important? That we don't follow this power. Let me tell you why. The Bible speaks of two mysteries. The mystery of godliness and the mystery of iniquity. Do you know the difference between these two mysteries? Very simple. The mystery of godliness is that the great God humbled himself and became a servant. Right? That's the mystery of God. God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 What is the mystery of iniquity? It's just the opposite. It's when a mere man ascends and wants to have the authority of God. So the mystery of godliness is when the great God humbles himself to become man. Whereas the mystery of iniquity is when mere, a mere man wants to take the place of God. But now I want you to notice something. It's interesting that Jesus, who humbled himself, was exalted. You read Philippians chapter 2, it says that he humbled himself, he became a servant, suffered the death of the cross, and then it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. Whereas with Lucifer, who said, I will ascend to the height, I will take the power, I will take the throne, I will be like God, God says, down you go. In other words, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The first shall be last, and the last first. He who saves his life will lose it, and he who loses it for my sake will save it. They all mean the same thing. What I'm saying is that prophecy predicts that those individuals who are proud of their own accomplishments, who are proud of their own wisdom, 
will follow a system that manifests the same spirit. Whereas those individuals who have the humility of Jesus to love the truth, to accept the truth, and to live the truth, will be like the humble Jesus. They'll sit at his his feet with an open heart and an open mind to learn what Jesus has to teach. And the more we sit at the feet of Jesus, the more humble we will become. Trouble in the world today is that people say, oh, you've got to exert your authority and your power. You're right. Jesus didn't exert his rights as God. They forget those rights. People come first. So God wants us to have that same spirit. People come first. That's the reason why this Antichrist is painted in such a deplorable way in Scripture is because he opposes God and he tramples upon God's people. The proud power. And everyone who has pride in the heart manifests the spirit of this same power. And so may Jesus break our hearts. Maybe we fall upon the rock and our self be broken that that rock will not come and crush us. May we have the mind of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.